Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When I moved out of my childhood home and became an adult, I remember asking my mom, how much did you spend feeding me and my siblings? Straight up, she laughed in my face, and she's probably still laughing, but her point was pretty clear. We were expensive to raise. We've been talking a lot about the rising cost of living here in Nashville. How is that affecting our process and our access to affordable childcare? Later this hour, we'll bring you a special Citizen Nashville episode all about childcare access. We'll hear from parents, then invite a few people working to lower the barriers for local guardians. But first, if you want to get around in this town, it helps to be able to drive. The first step is passing the driver's test. But what happens when the test is not offered in your native language? It's a question that came to us through WPLN special project, Curious Nashville. And joining me now to answer it is producer Alexis Marshall. Hey, Lexi. Hey, Khalil. So what was this Curious Nashville question? So Abram Abraham is our question asker, and he wrote to Curious Nashville a little bit bewildered about why the state doesn't offer its written driver's exam in Arabic. He said that it's the third most spoken language in Tennessee, which I fact-checked against census data, uh, and that bore out. And he said that he wanted to talk about the issues that this causes for Arabic-speaking immigrants. Okay, so what were your first, first steps in trying to answer this? Yeah, so first I went up and met Abram for coffee um, because I really wanted to hear about all of the ways this impacts life for immigrants here. And he was talking about how that affects access to jobs, access to getting your kid to child care, like you'll hear about later in the episode, um, and, and just the overall like quality of life for people. Um, but then I also reached out to Michael Hogan, who's the director of driver services for Tennessee, and, and he had some answers as well. So what did he tell you about how the test is offered now? Um, so as things are currently, there are five languages that the Tennessee knowledge exam is available in, and that's uh, Spanish and English, which you might expect. But it also includes uh, Korean, hmm. Japanese and German um, and he said that economic development uh, was a big part of that. So you spoke to about the knowledge test with Abram Abraham. He teaches a class for Arabic speaking immigrants, as you said, and transportation is one of the biggest barriers for his students. Here he is translating for one of them. Yeah. So she used to go to work at two in the morning she she goes to work uh, at two in the morning and she's not supposed to, to start her shift till five in the morning so she had to wait three hours just to get a ride and you know she told us there is a lot of people a lot of friends that she knows that just can't drive that can't drive right now and that just of course you know prevent them from having a job and starting a life here I mean that's pretty extreme to you had to be at work at five but you're getting up and getting prepared to go to work at two in the morning Tell me, how would access to an Arabic language driver's test really help in cases like this? Yeah, so obviously it seems 
saves hours of time, um, but also quite possibly money because some of the folks who I talked to for this story, um, instead of relying on the bus and um, taking hours long bus rides, um, decided to use rideshare services like Lyft and Uber, and that can really add up. Um, and then there were also folks in that class that Abram teaches um, who took a class who had to pay for a course that would help them learn to pass the driver's exam in Arabic, or no, in, in English, rather. Hmm. Um, so it was a course that was taught in Arabic with some English to help them pass the English driver's exam. So a lot of them spent like hundreds of dollars on on that e- like course as well. So time and money and just the opportunity of of getting out there and starting their lives. I mean, so if if Arabic is the third most spoken language here in the state, why is it not offered on the test? So I didn't get a super clear answer on this from the state, but I think that it boils down to priorities. Um, there have been multiple calls for Arabic and other languages to get added as options to the test over the last decade. Um, and the director of driver services said that the last time that they added a language, it was maybe like three to $5,000, somewhere in that range, potentially more to, um, to add a language and add study materials. But the division's budget is tens of millions of dollars a year. So it seems like in recent years, it just hasn't been a very high priority. Um, but he says that they haven't ever ruled it out as an option, um, just that it hasn't been done yet. Yeah, it's a perpetual option at this point. So you tagged along with reporter Laura Dean to meet a few women who recently moved here from Egypt. We heard from them last month in our episode about Ramadan. Rasha and Zanib, let's listen. Before you got your license, were both of you relying on Uber? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and how long was that? Nine months. Wow. I'm still for now. Still Uber for now. Yeah. Yeah. Go to work every day with Uber. جلال في الشركة الثانية فمعاده قبل معادي بنص ساعة يعني هو معاده أربعة ونص الصبح وأنا معادي الساعة خمسة فالأول كان بيوصلني بس كان بيتأخر. So her husband used to drive her, but he's, his work starts at 4.30 in the morning and her starts at 5. And so before, he used to drive her, but then he'd be late for work. And so she said, no, it's okay, I'll take an Uber. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like transportation has been a huge issue for these women. Yeah, it totally has. So Rasha actually has her driver's license now, but um, she actually almost got into an accident like right after she got her license and somebody almost hit her. And I mean, anybody who's driven on I-24 knows how scary Tennessee drivers can be sometimes. Oh yeah. So she's been really shaken up. And so she's not driving still, but um, Zainab did get her license and um, it's really opened up the world to her. She says that she can drive her husband to work now. Um, She can take her kids out whenever they want to go someplace. She has so much more freedom now and she's really enjoying that. I'm really happy for Zainab. So, you know, as we mentioned earlier, you talked with Michael Hogan, the director of the state's driver services. Where did you leave things with him? So Abram and Michael, uh, Abram being our question asker, actually got a chance to meet not too long ago. They got on a meeting and I was allowed to sit in on that. 
Um, and Abram got a chance to talk to Michael about why this matters so much. And in addition to that, Michael had reached out to me and asked about the data that I had found for this story and asked me to send that to him. And during their meeting, he was asking Abram questions about, like, would this need to be offered in different dialects? And Hmm. um, kind of some more finer detail type questions. Michael said that he couldn't make any promises about the future of Arabic being on the written exam. Um, But he said that, you know, it was in a better position now than it had been a month or two ago. Okay, so it looks like the ball may be soon, possibly, quite, kind of, could get rolling. (laughs) Yes, with all of those qualifications, it it seems like, uh, you know, it's in a better position now than it had been before. Um, So, yeah. That is Alexis. Yes, yeah, yes, indeed. That is Alexis Marshall, producer at WPLN. Thanks for joining us and bringing us this story, Lexi. Thank you, Khalil. If you have a question you really want answered, send it in. Head to WPLN.org and submit your question to Curious Nashville. We we have to take a short break. When we come back, it's time for Citizen Nashville. Today, it's all about child care. Are you a parent or a guardian? What has getting child care been like for you? Tell us your experiences and questions at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Citizen Nashville. We've talked a lot here at WPLN News about how to serve you, our communities, better. So a few times a month, we're bringing you a special hour we're calling Citizen Nashville. Our goal is to answer your questions, round up resources for you, and make you sure our leaders hear your needs loud and clear. So today, we're talking about child care. Now, my brother is expecting his first child this fall. The family is super excited. We've been making tons of phone calls, checking in on his fiance, asking what we can do to help. The last time we talked, I asked about their plans for childcare. They said that's only crossed their minds a few times, but they were looking into it. Well, if I've learned anything from my prep for this episode, I've learned that they better get started and get started fast. Childcare in Nashville is expensive and hard to find. We've been collecting your experiences at thisisnashville.org. And joining me now are a few parents who are navigating this at the moment. Erica Hernandez-Henderson, Megan Harlem Harrison, pardon me, Erica Hernandez-Harrison, Megan harlem and Lindsay Opio. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you, Khalil. Thank you all for being here. So, Erica, I want to start with you. You are a new mom, right? Yeah, I'm new mom. Hi. (laughs) Hey. So tell me, one, how old is your child? And two, what has your child care situation been like? Uh, She's about eight months and a half, almost nine months. And uh, it's only me and my husband taking care of her. Mostly me. Yeah, my husband, he stills working full time. So he arrives around 4 p.m. And then, yeah, between him and me, we do the rest of the day. So how early on did you all start thinking about childcare? Since I was pregnant, maybe when I was four months pregnant, something like that, I start asking around 
And yeah, we realized that it was yeah too expensive to really even be worth it for me to go to work or to work and pay that. So it was just ridiculous. So uh, because I don't have like um, I'm I I'm a yoga instructor and I'm a freelance designer, so I don't have like a full time job. Uh, so it wasn't just it was impossible. <laughs> it mm-hmm. was just like, no, this is not worth it. I yeah. understand. And, and probably the lack of a full-time job and the benefits that they offer made make the decision a little bit more tough. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I thought at the beginning, I will, I will go back to start working when she was like, we thought around four months, five months, but no, the reality is still is not worth it. And, I'm enjoying being with her, but it's just from the financial point of view, it's just, it's not worth it. Yeah. Now, Megan, is what Erica is saying familiar to you? Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, Um, we actually um, started getting on wait lists when we were about five weeks pregnant um, last February. And Um, we have several friends who became parents here in Nashville before we did. So I felt like we were pretty well versed in the circus that is the childcare system here. And so we had an idea of, of how to get the ball rolling or so we thought. Um, and so we started making calls, um, and sending emails, um, and just waiting to hear back from, from centers and, um, had very much kind of the same experience. We um, got on five wait lists pretty immediately. Um, the other thing is you have to pay usually $100 a pop or so to get on a wait list. Mm. And so um, we were shelling out $100 here, $100 there, just um, knowing largely we wouldn't get into most of these places, most likely. Um, and um, one of the places actually, um, after four to five calls and emails, finally called me back and said um, they might have room for our son when he turns three or four years old, um, even though I was I was about six weeks pregnant at the time when I called. Um, so you so, started looking for childcare when you're like five to six weeks pregnant? Yes. Yeah. My son is now seven months old. Um, we still, we, we have a spot, um, slated for July. So, um, I think we're luckier than most. I have lots and lots of friends who, um, are in a similar boat than we are. My fingers are crossed for you for that July spot to actually open. (laughs) So what, what, what was, what was the advice other moms gave you? You know, people, uh, it, it, it wasn't so much, um, it wasn't so much advice people were, were giving us that um, uh, is, I'm not saying this correctly. Basically what we were told is, is get on list as soon as you can. And um, when I had friends last summer who then were telling me that they were pregnant um, almost in the same breath that I was congratulating them, I was telling them, I don't want to be that person that scares you because parenting is all about other people scaring you, but um, <laughs> get on wait list as soon as you can, because um it's a circus and, and, you know, you want to have that checked off as quickly as you can, but unfortunately it's all just a big waiting game. Was there this competition between all these expecting families to see who can get on the list earliest and who can get their child actually in childcare? Is, is that kind of 
come about? I wouldn't say there was competition with, with like me and friends I know necessarily. I think, um, you know, my husband actually in happenstance was driving, um, here in Nashville, happened to see a brand new center, actually the place that we um, are slated to have a spot in, saw that they were enrolling for infants. And he calls me immediately. I think it was on the way to Home Depot. Um, he calls me immediately, gives me the phone number, tells me to call this place. Um, and and that, thankfully, is, is where we're likely slated. And that's only because it's a brand new spot. And in those conversations, though, inevitably, you ask, okay, what spot am I on the wait list? How many other sibling families do you have there? What is the potential, you know, you really (laughs) kind of put their feet to the fire and ask them like, okay, really like shoot me straight. What is the likelihood that we are going to get in? Um, So that's, that's probably more of the competitive factor that we kind of encountered. Okay. So Lindsay, I'm almost afraid to ask, Um, is your experience similar to Erica and Megan's? I have been really fortunate in that my issues haven't been so much around access Um, but more around finding a safe environment for my child and a place where he feels like he belongs. Okay, tell me more. Sure. So I have a a five-year-old. He just graduated from pre-K last week. He's about to go to kindergarten. And we have been in three different child care institutions, one in Washington, D.C., and then two here in the Nashville area. And I found that the questions I ask when looking for a place have really changed over time. Um, what resonates with that that advocacy point? You have to kind of be aggressive um, and really advocate for your child and for finding that spot. But when we first moved to Nashville and we were looking for a place, it was summer of 2020. So I was really worried about safety, about COVID protocols, kind of about supervision. And um, I took a lot of different tours. There was actually a lot of openings because people hadn't really started going back. Um, on one tour, I remember the environment was described to me by one of the center directors as junkyard chic. Hmm. And I quickly realized that was not what I was looking for. Okay. Um, but we, we did get a spot in a place that was new and shiny, and I thought it was really, really great. And I learned quickly that all that glitters is not gold. Um, and we faced a lot of belonging issues. So my son is biracial, black and white. And the environment that we were in was predominantly white. There wasn't a whole lot of understanding of bias or diversity or inclusion in the school environment. So we faced different things, microaggressions like crazy hair day. And he was told by a teacher when he was three years old that his daddy who has an an accent um, is in the Black Panther movie, which was just confusing and unnecessary. Hmm. Um, I also was receiving photographs on the school app of the other black child in the classroom. Um, so it, it was just one thing after another. And finally, I thought there has got to be something else out there for us. Yeah. So I started going on other tours and I was now asking a lot of questions about diversity training and um, kind of what is the demographic of the school population. And thankfully, we found a really great home and I'm sad to be leaving it. Okay. Um, but I just want to reflect real quick. So they sent pictures of the other black child to you saying, "Yay, your son is doing so great, but it's someone else's son. Correct, yes. Okay. Uh, we're just going to move on from there. Megan, I want to ask you about what the wait list that child care facilities use. You said you had to pay $100 just to be put on this list. And that can become very, very expensive to just kind of wait and see if there's an opening. How many waiting lists did you all end up submitting to? Yeah. So I think at this point, we submitted to five Um a friend of ours who actually um, we met in our childbirth class, we were kind of sharing 
um, commiserating, if you will, about getting onto wait lists and um, kind of came up with this summary that when you get pregnant, you just have to set aside 500 or $1,000, just knowing you'll never see it again and just start throwing it out to, to daycares to get on wait lists, um, knowing you may or may not get a spot. I mean, that's hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars just to be put on a wait list. Erica, you explained that you're looking for a babysitter, not full-time childcare. You know, what kind of difference would access to a babysitter really make in your life? Oh, a huge difference. <laughs> hmm. uh, right now, uh, simple daily things like I had an issue with a tooth. I needed to go to the dentist and it was a whole coordination with my husband, he needed to ask uh, half day off at work so he will be able to take care of our baby so I can go to take care of uh, a root canal. So uh, things like that, like very basic things, because we don't have family in town. So it's, it's my husband and me taking care of her. So I need a babysitter from time to time just for basic things like that. Yeah. So what concerns do you have when looking for a babysitter? Um, well, diversity, a person who is, because I'm a Mexican. So yeah, that's a one big concern that the person is not like, well, you know, like she's aware of diversity and mm -hmm. accepting Mexicans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, and then I can talk for hours about it. So I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> uh, and then COVID, of course. Yeah. Uh, I, I have uh, friends that they interview literally like five babysitters that they didn't want to get boosted or vaccinated. So that's, of course, a huge priority that babysitter needs to be, must be boosted. And so at least those two things but of course is is scary in these times because you don't know where the other person is going what he's doing if he's really taking care of her health or no how many people she's in contact with so it's not easy and yeah we had tried uh only one person because the other two recommendations one has COVID <laughs> and the other one, uh, she's just not responding my text because she's busy. Uh, and uh, the one who already came, my baby just didn't like her. <laughs> mm. So it's just uh, being hard. It's not easy. If you're just tuning in, this is Citizen Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. It's a special hour dedicated to child care. We're learning about the difficulties accessing good, affordable child care from the parents themselves. Finding the right child care is nothing to be rushed. And Lindsay, I think your experience shows us that. Did you anticipate that it would be so hard to find a place for your son where you could trust the caretakers and the environment? I didn't expect it, no. And I felt really guilty pulling him from one environment to the other. I know that kids really need routine um, and that they need to kind of build strong peer connections and to, to get to know the teachers. Um, but finally, when I did decide, okay, this is enough, um, it was actually a safety issue. Um, fun fact, maybe a future show is that there doesn't seem to be communication between um, private educational institutions, police and public institutions. Hmm. So there was an incident last, um, last year in the spring 
in Bellevue where we live where there was believed to be an active shooter somewhere in the vicinity. The public schools were locked down and his child care institution nearby was not and he was outside on the playground. Um, but that was kind of a final straw for me. I just was like, it's, it's enough. And I realized there's a whole new world out there. And um, it was, it's been a much better choice to find the right fit um, versus fear of change. So as you addressed these issues and found these issues with your son, did you come to staff and the leadership there at the organizations? What was their response? Um, yes, I, f- I feel like I have to pick and choose my battles, honestly, because if every single day I'm bringing up every single issue, then I'm going to spend my whole life fighting. Mm. Um, and then that's not particularly productive. So some of these issues, yes, I did raise them. Um, the hair one in particular, I sent an email that I felt like was diplomatic um, and gave some resources for why that was problematic and was met with some resistance from the administrators who said that in their 20 plus years, of um, teaching, they'd never heard of that being a problem, which I think that that speaks more to their lack of understanding of multiculturalism than of me kind of gently raising an issue and trying to teach them that what they were doing wasn't okay. That really sounds like a risk you take with your child under under the care of others. It's like, in many cases, these are strangers. And, you know, Megan, answer this for me. Is this a worry of yours that your child could be mistreated no matter where you send them? Yeah, it is. Honestly, I, um, I think that that is unfortunately something that we're almost not, um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm obviously in a little bit of a different position than Lindsay is being that I have an infant and, um, it does seem like, um, more infant parents, um, seem to be looking for childcare than, uh, for the older kiddos. But I think something that is not even really part of our conversation, um, among new, new parents to new babies is, um, kind of what Lindsay has hit on. And it's um, really unfortunate that that can't even be part of what we're um, uh, discussing um, because the availability and accessibility is something that isn't even there. Um, so I, I have those concerns, but it's almost as if I can't even really consider them because um, if, if there's no place to take him, then I can't really consider how safe or welcoming it is. I mean, some people really ask their families for help. My mother, own mother, moved from Maryland to California to help my sister out with my nephew. That was decades ago. Erica, how important is it to have a network of family or friends to help out? <laughs> it's very important, but sadly, we don't we don't have it. <laughs> uh, I grew up in obviously in, in a Mexican Latin society where it's very common that you have your aunts, cousins, and mother-in-law and mom who helps with childs. And uh, I moved here six years ago and I don't have that. So I of course I was aware of that when we were we were trying to get pregnant and and I'm okay with that. It's just is it's hard. Yeah. You know, having a support network is really good, but I'm curious, what would you like to see our public officials do to address this issue? Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, well, I don't I don't. It's hard to to figure out an answer for where we are living right now. Uh, but of course, it's, it's what to me is obvious, like um, talking about on security in the schools and uh, and diversity. It's just, yeah, keep fighting racial 
uh, issues. And of course, uh, banding guns. That's pretty obvious to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in the next segment, we're going to round up resources and get some answers from a, from a few people who work in child care here in Nashville. You know what? I wonder what questions you have for them. Lindsay, what questions do you have? I would love to know more about groups in the community that are actively kind of banding together to do something about this. I've been really inspired lately about collective action and realizing that the only way we're going to make changes is if we really work together and are quite strategic. Megan? I think in light of um, the recent funding that was passed to support early child care, I think I would be interested in learning more about the opportunities to leverage faith-based and community organizations to provide subsidized care in neighborhoods. And Erica? Yeah, I think very similar to, to Megan. Yeah. That is Erica Hernandez-Harrison, Megan Harlembachis, and Lindsay McLean opio Thank you so much for being with us, and good luck to you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. We have, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion on child care and answer your questions. It's not too late to send those in. Just tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Citizen Nashville. On today's special episode, we're talking about childcare. It's expensive, but necessary for working parents and guardians. We've been soliciting your stories at thisisnashville.org. Are you struggling to find affordable care? It's not too late to share your story. Tweet us your questions about childcare at This Is Nashville. Now, before the break, we were hearing from local parents about their struggles. Now I'd like to invite a few guests who work in childcare to share resources and, magic word, solutions. Travis Claybrooks is the CEO of the Rafa Institute, and Annie Parasom is the interim director of the 18th Avenue Family Enrichment Center, which provides child care and after school and summer enrichment for older children. It was founded in 1934 as the Negro Youth Work Committee. Thanks to you both, Travis and Annie, for being here with me today. Thank you. Thank Good you. to be here. Good to be here. So back in April, Metro approved $7.5 million to revolutionize childcare here in Nashville with the new local childcare stabilization program. Now, Travis, I understand you and the Rafa Institute were one of the two organizations charged with implementing this. Tell us about the program. Yeah, this is a radical move uh, by our city um, to do to do some amazing work and, and to make some, I think, su- significant change with respect to um, how we approach early learning and providing early learning and to um, really help close the gap between uh, people who need it and and um, those who provide it. Um, our strategy is, is thinking of we partner with the United Way uh, on this funding, um, the United Way supporting center-based models and Rafa Institute focusing on home-based models. And I'll speak, you know, mostly to, you know, what we're doing at Rafa Institute. Uh, it, instead of going into a community and trying to start a center, let's invest in the infrastructure that's already there. That is women primarily who are already doing this, who are already providing 
uh, early learning access. However, especially in poor, low-income communities, these providers are deeply disconnected from very important resources, resources like licensure support, resources like pedagogical support, resources like business coaching. Uh, And so our strategy is around how do we invest in that infrastructure, providing resources to those providers so that then they can be the solution in their own community. Well, how's the money going to get split up and, and really help families? Yeah, so we're we're taking just under two million of that over seven million dollars to do five things essentially. Uh, one, we provide business coaching to early um, uh, to um, home based childcare providers, right? So this looks like how do you begin to think about yourself as just a neighbor who's keeping kids to I am a business owner, mm-hmm. right? Secondly, pedagogical support, right? Can we imagine a space where in a low-income community, it's the home-based providers that are the destination of choice for high quality? I'm talking Montessori. I'm talking Reggio Emilia-inspired approaches to education in the projects, right? Mm -hmm. That would be amazing. Could we we do that? Thirdly, what does it look like to to have licensure support to navigate the gauntlet of becoming a licensed home-based provider, right? And then two other things which are really about direct cash support. If I am a if I'm a woman who has who has you know quit my job and I don't find it economically sustainable to go back to work and put my kids in childcare, what does it look like for me to to open a business? I'm already keeping my kids. What if I could take on a few other kids that are in the neighborhood? So providing startup funding and or if I've already been doing it to provide enrichment, you know, mm-hmm. funding to help upgrade the things that are in my in my space and to close the and this is the second area to close the gap between what it costs to run a home-based child care um, center and what I'm actually able to make or charge the folks in my community. So we provide basic income support to um, to those families. So Annie, 18th Avenue has provided early childhood education in North Nashville for about 40 years. Tell us about your approach. Uh, well, I'm only, I've only been in a position for about a year now. Okay. But I've been in early childhood just about my entire professional life. So... My philosophy since I've taken over is to really support families to like support them in accessing quality uh, early childhood um, education. And what that looks like for us when I came in is removing late payment fees, because if you're already behind, Mm -hmm. adding a payment fee is not going to help you like access care. And it also looks like starting a scholarship program and partnering with Rafa Institute and other organizations to cut costs for families. And our scholarship program pretty much directly assesses the family needs. So they turn in their paperwork, income, and everything, and we assess, okay, this is what you can afford to pay. What we're hoping to also start is an adopt-a-family program where a business or someone that we talk to can sponsor a family in accessing care as well. And uh, also dealing with family lists. You have a family handbook but understanding that each family shows up as an individual unit. Mm -hmm. So how do you care for that family while still having like a standard of what care looks like for us all together? Is that uh, individualization of each family one of the barriers that you guys face? I would say it as as an industry, it is not a practice Mm -hmm. because we are very, these are the rules, this is what we're doing. 
and this is what it looks like. But I do think with like the atmosphere we're currently in, it is a conversation that needs to be had if we're really truly in the business of supporting families. So we've been asking our listeners to write in with their child care experiences. Jen Bryn wrote in to tell us that she loves her son's current daycare, but that it costs as much as her mortgage payments. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Travis, why is child care so expensive? Well, I think fundamentally the industrial model doesn't work, to put it frankly. It is extremely expensive to, if, if I run a center, Annie can tell you, right? She does it as a nonprofit. But even if I'm trying to make a profit, to handle the overhead, to pay staff what they really deserve and need to be paid, um, things like insurance and all the supplies and equipment and so forth and so on, it is super expensive to to do that. And we have, uh, that's our really only way of doing it as a as a community we only got one thing that we are able to offer right so if i if i were to say to you imagine that you know we went from a public school system to a private school system right mm-hmm. where every school was private and you had to come up with the tuition to do it there would only be a few kids of the 90,000 K to 12 students in our county who would be able to access it because it is mad expensive and so we need more options to help relieve the economic stress that's 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 on the industry every some people can afford to go to a center some people can afford some centers can afford um to to handle that overhead and to be able to still offer their service at a price that's accessible to the to the people and families that they're serving but most people aren't we natalie boyd left us a voicemail at thisisnashville.org she and her husband are expecting a baby this july she said she started applying for wait lists at local daycares back in january but she only secured a spot One of the most stressful parts was waiting to hear back from all the different places she had reached out to. Let's take a listen. I have to have this care. Um, Both my husband and I work, and I'm a full-time high school teacher in Metro Nashville Public Schools. When I reached out to the three places about a week ago, which is now three months before needing care, only one of those places could tell me with certainty that we didn't have a spot. The other two weren't sure. And one of them said, I'll let you know in a few months, which is basically the same time that I need care. Unfortunately, I couldn't really wait <laughs> to find out if we were going to have a spot or not because I have to go back to school and teach. Um, Amazingly, a spot actually opened up at the first place that originally said they did not have space. Um, so we're actually okay. Um, and really, I, it's amazing that it happened. Um, it's a little more expensive than the others, but it's close to my work. Um, it seems like daycares don't really know if they have space or not, maybe partly because of their sibling preference policies, which I understand. Um, but it still was really frustrating for daycares just not to even know if they would have space or not. And it seems as though you have to essentially get on a wait list before you've even gotten pregnant (laughs) to have hope of getting a spot. Um, So this is particularly tricky for us because we've dealt with infertility for over five years. Um, So it wasn't feasible or possible to predict when we were actually going to have a baby or if we would. Um, So I thought I did a good job of getting on a wait list nine months before needing the infant care, but somehow that didn't seem to be a in most cases getting pregnant before you even apply for a spot it's it that's that kind of blows my mind Annie tell me this how much of the problem is there with 
childcare and the affordability and access to it, about not having enough childcare options. Is that different than opposed to price at any point? I I think it it has a lot to do with what some of what Travis said. And there are way more students for the spots that are available. And that's really the biggest thing. There are just way more children in in our county than there are available and I'm just saying centers in general, not even quality care at this point. Mm. There aren't even enough spots at all. And that's why it's so difficult for parents to have like to to secure a spot in just a center in general without adding quality to that sentence. And then when you think about um, the hiring issue that's happening for early childhood, if we don't have the right number of staff in the building, we can't safely care for your children. And hiring is one of the, I will say, the biggest thing that centers are having at this point in time. So not having enough spots. What what are the recommendations for people as they continue to seek care? Oh, I would say start as soon as possible. Like that would be my first thing. And even then, there's it's not really a guarantee. One of the things that I have offered, which is like non-traditional, is getting into a like parenting hub mm-hmm. where you guys can figure out as a little community what that looks like. Very much modeling what uh, Travis was saying with home-based care. It's like, how do we figure out what this looks like for our children? Because there aren't enough spots in the facilities that are available. So what does that look like for us as a hub? And if I could could just add or brutish that a little bit. Yeah, we need more spots, even with with Head Start and Early Head Start, that is government funded, there still aren't enough enough seats. So part of this part of the strategy that we're taking at Refi Institute is saying to people who are providing home-based childcare, you can be the solution to the problem in your neighborhood. You solve the transportation, the act, the, the transportation problem that many families have. And by the way, you know, this is a citywide problem, but it is a huge and has been a huge problem in communities of color, poor, low income, marginalized communities. Everybody else is just now feeling it too, right? Mm-hmm. The the home based provider provides so much of the answer to this, and so part of it is, I think, having having strategies to recruit people and families to even get into the home based childcare piece because I think that's a that's a big big part of the solution. Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is Citizen Nashville, and I'm your host, Kali Olekalona. It's a special hour dedicated to childcare. My guests work in the industry. Travis Claybooks is CEO of the Rafa Institute, and Annie Parasone runs the 18th Annual Avenue Family Enrichment Center. So, like many of the folks we've heard from today, Lauren Piercy tells us that she had a difficult time finding childcare before her maternity leave was over and she felt rushed. She left us a voicemail at thisisnashville.org. Let's listen. We spent months touring daycares, taking all the recommendations we could from friends and our networks and got on 10 wait lists and we only got off of one. So just before our leave was up we miraculously felt like got a call and got into a daycare and took that because it was our only option and it ended up being a good option but it's not a great way to make a big decision about one's life 
I mean, choosing the route's right chair, child care is very, very an important decision. Why is high quality child care so important, Trev? It's hard, first of all. It's very hard to do. We're talking about developing brains and children with so many needs, right? But why is it important? Because it matters so much to the long term outcomes that the young person will experience. You know, one of our other programs is a restorative justice diversion program for kids coming through juvenile court, right? These kids are coming through having caused harm to other people and themselves having been harmed tremendously over the course of their life. 100% of the young people who come through our to our program through the juvenile court process got poor early starts. Mm -hmm. So it matters to the outcomes of, uh, it's a social determinant of good stuff or bad stuff. Kids who get poor early starts tend to be on a trajectory that causes more harm and costs the city more money, right? Kids who get great early starts are producers. They don't um, have some of the outcomes that, that, that other kids have. One of our listeners, Kim Jefferson, tells us she actually wants to start a daycare of her own. She's looking for resources to learn about the regulations she needs to meet and any funding there is to help her get started. So, Annie, what does that look like for from a child care yeah. center now, perspective? Now is a great time because the Community Foundation is actually doing an expansion. They have an expansion grant available for anyone who wants to either expand or start a new child care facility. So that's like. That's where I would start immediately. And as far as licensing, I would look at the Department of Human Services website because they have all of the licensing um, information on there. And it's really a matter of kind of getting on there and getting all the information that's available on there. It's like a robust support system yeah. to help people with this process. And, and what I um, I love that they have like a search so once you put in the information you're looking for, it brings up exactly what you're looking for. So you don't have to read the entire licensing book. Okay. It's, it's pretty thick. So Travis, what does that look like from a home-based care perspective? Yeah, we're looking to start our first cohort of home-based child care providers providing that coaching and that support um, um, that, that we talked about earlier. Uh, in mid-July, we are focusing primarily at this point uh, on low-income communities, primarily MDHA properties, where this problem is exacerbated the most, right? We, um, over the next few months, will also be looking to expand that both in the Latin community and in the Muslim community. Families of color tend to, because of just cultural considerations, tend to prefer home-based spaces. So many of the family leaders, so, so many of the caregivers in these spaces work odd hours. They work non-traditional hours. And as great as Annie's, you know, a space is, hey, she's just not open from seven to three in the morning, right? Mm -hmm. So this provides so much more option and opportunity for uh, families in those communities. Now, so what are some of the top tips for parents looking for childcare right now? Annie. <laughs> Um, I'll say what to look for. You definitely want to look for safety. You want to look for an academic and a social emotional curriculum. You want to look for diversity or how they address diversity in general. You want to look for um, meals as I'm very I'm holistic in mm -hmm. the way that we approach it. So you want to look at how they are you bringing in the meals or they bringing in the meals. Um, you want to look at teacher. Um, their qualifications, that matters. And in general, how inviting, like when you first walk through the door and, like, and kind of pretty much tell you 
how inviting is the environment or how stimulating, how inviting are the staff. Mm-hmm. Now, Travis, how about like for people who necessarily don't have a wide variety in their choices? They can't be very choosy about this. Well, what are some tips for them? Be choosy. Be choosy. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. it's your kid. Okay. Absolutely have a vision for what you want for your child. It mm-hmm. might just be, you know what? I just need a babysitter. Truly. I just need a babysitter. But you you know, someone, another parent may have a completely different vision for their child. Do not settle. Keep searching, keep looking. I know that's not easy. Um, and and I, I would encourage us as citizens, right, to keep work for us to keep working to find answers and to offer solutions. I don't think it's just the problem of a mom or a dad with a with a child to to be out here in this vast sea of nothingness. It is all of our responsibility. We together can solve it and should. Okay, I just have under a minute left. I'm going to pose this question. I want both of you to ask. We'll split the time. What does the future of child care access look like in Nashville, Annie? I'm excited because of this funding. Hopefully this funding will show our officials the importance of subsidizing what the state already subsidized for care for low-income families. And hopefully we can get kind of a system going that allows more access. Then we can talk about, let's fill up all the spots that we have and look at how do we open up more spots for the children that still need care. Travis. Poor and low-income communities that have been historically marginalized will begin to see access to high-quality education. I'm excited about that. I want to thank you both for coming on to the show. That is Travis Claybrooks from the Rafa Institute and Annie Parason from the 18th Avenue Family Enrichment Center. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we're talking about the SBC. Last week, a bombshell report revealed decades of widespread sexual abuse abuse within the Southern Baptist Convention. How did this happen? What has the fallout been so far? Tune in tomorrow. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm a Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.